the long run, passivity won't pay off. It never pays off. If you want a life of meaning and transcendence, you're going to have to move. Aggression doesn't have to be toxic or damaging. Healthy aggression risks. It builds new things. It breaks through barriers. It's the key to living a life that matters. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. This is the second part of an ongoing series we've been doing around politics. If you missed last episode with Andrew Hanauer, you should go and check it out. He talks us through the dangers of division and some tangible ways we can overcome it. I told you, these episodes are going to push you. And if you don't like being pushed, you've already checked out. Maybe you're not going to be a subscriber any longer. That's okay, because I'm here to push you. That's what I'm going to do. The aggressive move is to take stock of your emotions and learn to listen. If you're on the left, especially, I want you to hear today's episode. Newsflash, Mike Huckabee is on the right, firmly planted on the right. And I think you'll hear some things that will surprise and maybe even delight you if you're on the left. This episode was recorded way back in January 2020, well before much of the current political turmoil we're experiencing today. Actually, there was a lot of political turmoil then, but it just got overwhelmed by coronavirus. Maybe that's one good thing about coronavirus. We talked more about how we're all united to hate COVID than actually the politics that have divided us, but it's back. We are divided absolutely for sure. We hadn't experienced coronavirus back then or the tragic death of George Floyd or any number of things that are piling up on our radar screen. So you won't hear us discuss those topics, but you will hear an honest political conversation, and I think you'll be the better for it. Welcome to the aggressive life. I don't know if you know it or not, but we're coming into political season. Oh, politics. Oh, my goodness. Politics. I know. It's stressful. It seems like every single election, I hear people saying, oh, it's the most important election of our lifetime, most important election. I don't know if this is going to be the most important election, but I know this. It's going to be the most divisive election of our time. Studies say 61% of Americans identify as, quote, unquote, the exhausted majority. And we're going to be with someone who's going to give us, shed some light on the situation, who understands politics, has been in them and around them for a long, long time. His name is... Mike Huckabee. Yes, Mike Huckabee. The same Mike Huckabee who ran for president two different times as a pastor, governor, and former presidential candidate. Mike Huckabee has seen and experienced it all. Part of living an aggressive life means fighting hard for what you believe and something that my guests have been doing for quite some time. In his political career, Mike served as the 44th governor of Arkansas. He ran for Republican president nomination in 2008 and 2016. He's an ordained Southern Baptist minister. He has written several best-selling books and currently hosts the television show Huckabee on the Trinity Broadcast Network. Today, I'm excited to dive in with Mike. Uh, whether you find yourself on the right, on the left, in the center, the aggressive move is, hey, let's look for common ground. At least that's what we're going to try to do today. Mike Huckabee, welcome to The Aggressive Life. Thank you. Brian, it's great to be with you. And uh I'm excited that you're here. Looking forward to uh, our conversation. And by the way, uh, excited that you're going to be on our television show. Yeah. Talking about uh, 
what it means to live the Christian life as a as a as a male. As a male, we got a Phantom Lake thing on Amazon Prime. I guess we're going to talk about and all that kind of stuff. Well, you, you tell me your story, Baptist pastor to presidential candidate. How, how does that happen? What was your process? Being a pastor was not my first career. It was sort of the detour in my life. I thought my life was going to be broadcasting and politics. And I started in broadcasting at the age of 14. And I worked my way through junior high, high school, college, and grad school doing mostly radio, but then television as well. And I was in a broadcasting career doing radio, television, and ran an ad agency and was really preparing to use that as a platform to someday run for public office. A series of rather bizarre circumstances led me into the pastorate. It was not a career goal. It was not something I said, boy, I can't wait to be a pastor. And even going to seminary was not about being a pastor. It was about preparing to get into Christian broadcasting. So I think most people say, oh, you went from the pastorate to politics. Actually, I went from uh, media, communications, and uh, radio television to the pastorate, which was a real detour. But it was my grad school. It's where God really took my life molded it into understanding what was going on with people. And that brought me back to the dream of running for public office, but for a totally different reason, because now I felt like that I understood something about human life that I'd never understood before. And I'll I'll make this quick, but see, I'm convinced that there's there's no profession in the country where a person sees more of the totality of life from the cradle to the grave, the best and the worst the good, the bad, the ugly, than the pastorate. Because you're with people when they're deciding whether to uh, buy groceries or eat their pet's food. You're there when an older couple is having to sell their home off because they can't pay their medical bills. You're there when the teenage girl comes in and tells you at age 14 that she's pregnant before she tells her parents and she's scared to death as to what to do. You're there when the young couple uh, loses uh, their three-year-old to cancer and they're devastated and they're having a hard time keeping their marriage together because of it. You're there for everything that happens in a person's life, for the moments of of the marriages and the births and everybody's happy, to the moment where you're holding grandma's hand in ICU as she slips into eternity, and the family's standing around and and they're not ready to let go. So there's a side of life that, that I've said, a pastor can put a name and a face to every social pathology that we have in our culture today, bar none, every single one of them. Tell me any other profession in which a person is going to touch the human life in that manner. There isn't one. I think one of the the downsides of being a pastor, uh, tell me if you agree or disagree if you thought about this before, is I have so many people who ask me, pray for this, pray for that, pray for this, pray for that. And no one's ever saying, hey, pray that my life keeps going great. (laughs) No one ever says, hey, pray that I just keep having the level of joy I have. I have so many people I know who want prayer for, and I'm, I'm thankful they ask me. I'm honored to pray for it. But every disease, every malady, every tragedy, I just, I, I hear them all. And it, it starts to make you a little paranoid that something's going to get you because I'm hearing about more tragedy every day, I think, than the average person. Do, do you know yeah. what I mean? Did, did you feel that way or do you feel oh, that yeah. way? You, you do feel that way. And I, I think sometimes people see God as the director of the emergency room, never the director of the party room. You know, he's not the guy that you go and say, hey, I wanna, I'm gonna go spend time with God because I wanna celebrate some things. It's like, I'm gonna go spend some time with God because my life's falling apart. 
Now, there are some people who I think have the discipline of recognizing that life is about a consistent walk and not just a rush in when there's a problem, uh, touch base with God, let him know, hey, I'm really hurting. Maybe you can bail me out. And sort of like that last scene in the great movie, The End, where Burt Reynolds is trying to make the bargain with God. You're really aging yourself here right now. I aged myself long before this. Burt Reynolds died years ago. I know, but it's a great movie. It is a good movie. The scene is one that should be played in every church. It really should. It's a great sermon unto itself because he's drowning and he starts bargaining with God. God, if you just let me live, I'll give you 10%. Well, he continues to drown. God, I'll give you 20. God, I'll give you 50%. And we're talking gross here, not just net. (laughs) So it's this hilarious comedy of this guy bargaining with God. And what makes it funny is you know that this is, in essence, how people approach God. I'm going to make a bargain with you, God. You do something really good for me. I'm going to write you a little check, give you a tip. As if God needs anything we've got. He doesn't. Anyway, uh, I just think that there is this sense in which a lot of believers, even genuine believers, have never stepped back to realize that God wants our fellowship. He doesn't want a transaction. He's not looking for us to sit down with him and make a deal so he gets something from us because he's in desperate need of us because he isn't. God got along before I came along. God's going to be in business after I'm gone. He doesn't need me, never has, but I do need him. And he's chosen to need me, not in a sense of the classic sense of need, but he wants to have relationship with me. That ought to thrill me to death. And most Christians, I don't think, see it that way. You, you had some challenges, at least I've heard. I want to hear from the, 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 the straight from the source. One of your churches, how many churches do you pastor? Uh, well, basically two, two that were full-time churches. Okay, one of them yeah. was in the South, at least one, and you had a segregation issue yeah. that you had to tackle. Well, tell me about that. Uh, the community in which I was uh, pastoring at the time, this was back in the early 1980s, um, it was largely a segregated community. Both blacks stayed to themselves, whites stayed to themselves. And, and it wasn't that the whole community was... Uh, racist are, are racially divided in that sense, but there was a sense in which on Sunday morning, uh, black people went to black churches, white people went to white churches, and that's just the way it was. I, I never thought that was right. And there was a, a young uh, African-American man uh, that I led to Christ, and he wanted to come to church where I was pastoring, wanted to be baptized. I said, well, of course. And so I then realized there's never been a black person who has been baptized in this church. And it seemed to me, well, it shouldn't be a big problem. No, yeah, no problem. So when he came, I just simply announced to the church that this young man, I gave his name, I said, uh, he's come to Christ, and uh, I am so delighted to welcome him. And I know you joined me in welcoming him. Well, there were a few who didn't join me in welcoming him. And they threatened that they would shut the church down uh, with its finances, that they would... I had death threats. Wow. I had death threats. Wow. People said, we'll kill you. We'll, we'll see you don't you know, live through the month. You know, whether they would have done it or not, I don't know. Didn't How did care. you do it? What did you do? How did you lead them through it? I just went ahead and baptized the kid. And I stood before the church and I said, let me tell you something. Um, we're so happy to have this young man here. And as I have to believe... You join with me in that joy. And I would never want to be a part of a church that wouldn't welcome anyone, regardless of 
what color his skin is. And, and for anyone who has a problem, you know, there's a back door as well as a front door. We welcome you to use whichever one you choose. But we welcome this young man here, and I baptized him that night, and that's when all the trouble broke out for a few months. But here's what was interesting. That month, after some men called me to come meet with them and told me that they were leaving the church and that they were taking their money and that the church would drive financially, that month the church had the best financial month it had ever had, and the growth of the church continued to go forward exponentially, and God blessed. And one of the great moments that I'll never forget, it's hard to tell without even choking up about it because there was this man who was about 83 years old, one of the old patriarchs of the church. And a couple of weeks after all this happened, you know, because I wondered about people like him who had grown up in a very different culture in the South than, than even I had. And he came to me before service and asked to see me. He, he came in and he started weeping. And he said, he said, Pastor, I always wondered what I would think, what I would feel, and what I would do if a black person came to this church. And he said, now I know. I'm delighted, and I'm so grateful. Thank you for helping me to get past something that I never wondered, or that I always wondered if I would be able to get through. And he was just crying. It was a breakthrough moment. So it, God blessed, and it, it was one of those important lessons, though. Do what's right. The consequences may or may not turn out beautiful in the immediate, but in the ultimate, uh, people respect and they appreciate if you take the stand that's right. People in the right, left, middle, I think we'd all agree there's a level of division and divisiveness happening. I'm wondering when you look at the presidential field, uh, what the Democrats have and all of the debates, all that stuff, like, do you go back in your mind of what it was like when you were running? And like, do you have, like, tell us, what are those folks in the Democratic field? What's their life like right now? I just think, I would assume it's, it's hell. Is it? Is it not? <laughs> What's it like if we empathize with those folks? The best way to describe a campaign is cold pizza and hot Cokes. <laughs> Instead of cold Cokes and hot pizza, it's just the opposite. But you're living on adrenaline. Uh, and you're living off convenience store pizza because you're going from early in the morning to late at night. There's no such thing as a normal schedule. Nothing is typical. And your every moment you're being pulled in a hundred directions. And if you're not in an event, you're in between events and you're on the phone the whole time, either trying to raise money from donors or answering reporter questions on the phone or having a reporter in the vehicle with you so that you can be interviewed. And it just never shuts down. It's, it's an incredible process. It's exhilarating. And I know it sounds crazy to say that a person could enjoy it, but I love the process of the campaign itself. I didn't like the contentious nature of the media part of the campaign. And frankly, the media has only gotten worse, not better. Uh, some of the campaigns have also become more sophisticated in their um, underhanded attacks against their opponents. And they don't do it directly. Most campaigns and candidates never attack you directly. Uh, they may say something in a speech, but the nasty stuff comes from um, dark money funded super PACs, organizations where you really can't trace the money. You may know where it's coming from, but you can't prove it. And that's frustrating because the most libelous, defamatory things are said about you and about your family. Uh, it's vicious and... I always tell people when they say, I'm thinking about running for public office. 
And I ask him, I say, can you stand the sight of your own blood? Because if, you're, if you can't, don't do it. This is a tough game. It's played uh, as a full contact sport without pads. So it's not for the faint of heart. But it is an important part of our uh, civil process. And quite frankly, when people say, well, I think politics is too nasty, then my response to that is, well, then get in it and, and do yeah. it better. Well, there's got to be some perks to it, though, right? I mean, Republicans and Democrats are, are running at various times who we all know, I mean, God can do anything, any miraculous <laughs> thing, but we all know they have no chance, but yet they're in it. What are there? What's the draw for someone to run when there's really no chance? Well, you know, I've had people say, well, you didn't really think you had a chance, and, and I want to hit them. Mm. Nobody would run for office mm. knowing they didn't have a chance. I mean, that's nonsense. It's well, utter you nonsense. You, you were clear. There was times in, in polls where for you, you were ahead. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, not, I'm not veiled talk. I'm no, doing no, this no, aggressive but, life. If I want aggressive to <laughs> say something to you, I will. This is not, this is not a veiled no, no, no. thing. But I was going to say that, you know, in, in 2008, I came in second to McCain. I had a, a much better run than anyone thought I could. In the 2016, um, I started out in really strong position, but it became obvious the media was so overwhelmed with covering Donald Trump that he was getting 90% of all the coverage and the rest of us, there were, what, 16 others of us who were sharing the final 10%. There wasn't any way imaginable that we were going to break through in that environment. So it's funny to me that the media created, um, in essence, the Trump phenomena, and now they're doing everything they can to stop it, and they can't. So it's, it's, I'm kind of enjoying watching them uh, roll all over themselves in what they themselves uh, help help create. Let's talk about President Donald Trump. Okay. May we? Certainly. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who is, um, he is, uh, I think Chris would call himself on the far left. We've had him on The Aggressive Life. He's a gay activist. Um, I've got, um, I hope to call you a friend. I met you the first time. You're, I think you, would you call yourself on the far right or on the right? Or, I wouldn't uh, say far right. I, well, you know, at least right or center. But, you know, yeah, I'm probably right or center, no doubt about that. But when people say far right, I always want them to say, define what that means. Am I pro-life? Yes. Do I believe in traditional marriage? Yes. Do I believe in lower taxes, smaller government, uh, robust defense forces to protect American, American citizens with the money that we contribute to them? Absolutely. Do I believe in people working hard? Yes. But I also believe that there are uh, important things that government and only government can do because I can't provide for myself a fire department or a police department or build roads for me to drive on between two places or uh, pay for the total amount that an airport might cost in order to fly in or out of a city. I'm always reluctant, but unapologetically, I would say I'm conservative. But I'm not, uh, here's what I like to say. I'm a conservative, but I'm not mad at anybody about it. You're not mad at, you're an American that's not mad? No. I thought you were, I I (laughs) thought if you were an American, a man, you had to be mad. No, and I think that's what's sad. There are a lot of people, first of all, they've lost their sense of humor. They have none. Uh, They take everything not only seriously, but they take it personally. That's nonsense. And a lot of people are pretty phony in what they whine about. You know, they're offended about everything. No matter what someone says, they're offended. Oh, you owe me an apology. Oh, uh, you know, I, I might say something about, uh, and I, I, do, I do Twitter, honestly, just for the fun of it. It's an amusement to me. Um, I amuse myself tweeting. And sometimes I, I enjoy watching the reactions of people because I'll say something and people get all worked up about it. And I'm trying to think of a good example where I might say something um, 
I was with my grandchildren this week. We had a great time. And then someone will respond, well, I bet you don't care about those children in the cages. It's like, really? You, you somehow are equating that, that I, I mean, that's the kind of nonsense that people are dealing with today. But that's just a, a it's a knee-jerk reaction in the environment that we're living in. And it's very unfortunate because it does not create dialogue. It does not lead toward a solution. It just leads toward alienation and uh, people having their feelings artificially hurt. Yeah. I remember, what, when was President Clinton impeached? When was that? That 98. was 98. Yeah. I remember the Democrats were saying in 98 that... Oh, it's, I, I, can't, I can't say all Democrats, but, but people were saying who were against the impeachment. I like the policies. I like what he's doing. I'm willing to overlook this indiscretion because I like the policies. Christians at the time were jumping all up and down like, hey, character counts, character counts. Yeah. Now it's on the other side. We've got a president who a lot of folks, hey, I like the policies. I like the policies. Yeah. And a bit more, so, well, you know, some of those character things doesn't count. And it, it seems like some people were playing different rules for what, how we were, were against Clinton and how we are for Trump, those of us who had the, quote, unquote, the character thing. What do you make of that? I mean, can you, or how do you explain, or is it different to you or what just, I mean, a lot of people have not heard a real genuine conservative with your own words to say, here's how someone with my convictions would look at this. Well, I think there was a lot of um, anxiety back when the uh, Clinton impeachment was going on. And, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that what he did, what he was accused of, what he was impeached for, was lying under oath. And it, it wasn't just about the sexual activity. So that was highly offensive. Not that he did it, but that he did it in the Oval Office. And, and I think that was a part of it. Everybody knew Clinton. I mean, I was from Arkansas, Lord. I've known Clinton for 40-something years. Was the governor right after him? There was one between us who got convicted of the crimes they never could get Clinton for. So I became governor because I was a lieutenant governor, and he was convicted and moved out. So he was two years between Clinton and me, and then I came in. But my point is that, uh, honestly, I think some Republicans were a little bit on their high horse. And I don't know if you remember, but there was two different speakers of the House that had to resign because it turned out that there were some things in their own Republican speakers both Newt Gingrich and then Bob Livingston, um, who were exposed for having committed adultery. And so both of them had to step down immediately following the Clinton impeachment because it was like, hey, if you're going to hold him to a standard, we're going to hold you to one. A lot of people forget that that happened. So while the Republicans may have been accused of, of being moralistic, they also ended up tossing out two of their own people uh, because once it was exposed what they had done. Yeah, there are people who think that Christians support Donald Trump because they think Donald Trump is a Christian. I have no illusions about his spiritual life. I think he's very sensitive about spiritual things more than people think. But I've said publicly, I've said it in his presence, I said it introducing him one time, that I'm not sure Donald Trump could find John 3.16 in a Mark New Testament if you held it open to the right page. Um, here's what I think people miss what he has done as president has been what we have uh, prayed a president would do, which is respect religious liberty, not tell churches that they're going to lose their tax-exempt status if they preach something that uh, the government doesn't like. That's important. 
He's been a person, the most pro-life president ever, even more than Reagan. And he's not just said it, he's done things about it that have been bold and dramatic in terms of saving the lives of, of children and really elevating the idea that every human life has worth and value. And there's no such thing as a disposable, expendable child. That to me is very important. Because I tell people, I did not become pro-life because I got into politics. I got into politics because I was pro-life and felt like that if we don't get this issue right, then we're no better than the people who engaged in slavery, where you think that a person can own another person, even to the point of death. I mean, I don't know of anyone who defends slavery. No one. I've never met a person who said, yeah, I think slavery was okay. Yeah, we maybe should go back to it. Uh, Why? Because it's morally repulsive. I pray for the day when the idea that taking the life of an unborn child is as repugnant to our culture as slavery uh, has been and should be. And so those, those views that, that our president holds right now, because they're so rare in history of recent presidents, we should give him some leeway in, on some of those personal decisions made? No, I don't made, think it's or? a matter of giving him leeway. I, I think people don't understand that a lot of the evangelical people um, with whom he has built good relationships are very bold in speaking to him when they are with him. But they don't, they don't go out there and do it um, on television. They're not trying to embarrass him or embarrass his family. Uh, but I know personally, having been there, that there have been many of those moments where there has been the thou art the man moment uh, to his face. And um, remarkably, he receives it. There is a sense in which he is in awe and amazement that he is unconditionally loved by a group of people, the Christians. And that's one of the things that most people have not seen. What I do appreciate about him is that there is no, uh, it, it could be said of him as it was of uh, uh, Nathaniel, in whom there is no guile, no pretense. There's no phoniness. There's not a duplicity in which one day he's vulgar and profane and the next day he's saying the lovely words of Zion. He's always vulgar and profane. Basically, yeah. But you know what? I'd rather be around a person who is consistent because that's who he is. He's grown up on construction sites and in Queens, New York, and on the streets of New York, and that's the culture he's grown up in. So he doesn't suddenly, if I come into the room, say, oh, Mike, I was just praying that maybe I would have a chance to visit with you. Oh, how God has been good. (laughs) And then when I walk out of the room, it's back to the vulgarity. I, I can't stand that duplicity, and I see it in people all the time, and I've lived with it, and I detest it. So I'd much rather have an authenticity of a person who doesn't pretend he's something he isn't, but he respects me, and I can respect the person who respects me as a person. I have a good friend who is a big real estate developer. He's done a lot of deals and has a lot of developments in a lot of different states. And uh, when President Trump was elected, he, he gave me a handbook of how he would govern as president. Mm-hmm. I said, what, what, what are you talking about? He said, hey, Donald Trump is a solo owner, real estate developer, and they all run the exact same playbook again and again. I said, well, like, tell, tell me what's that playbook. Yeah. And it's, this is before he actually swore the oath of office. He said, well, for one, every decision is yourself. You don't, you don't, you don't trust people around you. Every yeah. decision is yourself because as a solo real estate developer, you have all the financial 
pressure on you, and so you can't afford some, or you don't want somebody else to make a decision that's gonna hurt you too. Only trust people who are in your family. <laughs> don't, 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 because they're yeah. the ones that are in it with you for a long. Three, rule by hyperbole. So I go into, I go into a, in, into a area right now, and I say, if I don't get this zoning change for this movie, let me tell you what's gonna happen. I'm gonna take it down the street, and everyone's going to go there, and mm. the property value is going to go down, and this is going to be a ghost town, all because you, don't yeah. you, you rule by intimidation yeah. and hyperbole. And, and I hit down like three or four more, and it's like, I watched, it's like, wow, he, he really is. He runs like, he's running the country li like that. It's if people had read the book Art of the Deal, they would have had a clear understanding of who Donald Trump is and what he will do. And, and I don't know why the press never read the book. By the way, what you've just described in that uh, sense of being sort of a solo Reminds me of a lot of pastors I've known through the years as well. Right, right. Trust only my family. Never, you know, I'm right about everything. Hyperbole. I mean, there's a lot of that. So I know right now I can hear people on the left are going like, "Oh, Brian, I can't believe you're just, you're you're not pinning him down. You're not saying." And I can hear people on the right going, "Brian, I thought you I thought you were a Christian, <laughs> and, and you're not you're not you're not." Uh, I, I can hear the cacophony right now. I can hear it. I can uh, hear it. And you know what? I'm okay with the cacophony. And no matter where you are, I know you don't like me right now. We're used to this right now. I'm interested right now, whether we're on the right, the left, wherever we are. Is there a way that we can coincide with each other? What, what Mike is is. United States citizens, do you see a way out of our division? Is there a way for us to not be at each other's throat? Is there a way for us to find common ground? Is there a way for us to respect people who are different than us? I mean, I, everyone I talk to says, oh, yeah, I, I like to change it. But I don't know. What, what, do, what do you think? Is it well, possible? It, it is possible. It's going to be difficult. And let me give you a, a surprise. One of my very dear friends is Van Jones. Do you know who Van Jones yeah. is? Van Jones was in the Obama White House. Uh, he's a CNN uh, commentator. He's one of the most far-left political figures. He's also a strong believer. I mean, he loves Jesus. And he and I are good friends. And I know he's probably careful not to overdo that with his friends. Um, I had him actually write the, uh, uh, the liner notes to my last book, which shocked a lot of people. Probably killed sales because he's such an icon on the left. Van and I are friends. Do we agree on anything? Not much. But then there was something we totally agreed on and worked together on, and that was the first step program that, again, I don't think Trump got enough credit for it, but it brought people as diverse as Van Jones and Mike Huckabee, Tony Perkins and Kanye West, and it was all about trying to change the criminal justice system in this country to make it more redemptive, to make it less punitive, to create an avenue where people who truly had done wrong things, were not crushed under the weight of a government that totally forgot them and broke their spirits. As a governor, I saw what happened when you take hope from people. And I saw what happens not only to those individuals, but it doesn't resolve the crime problem, but it does bust the budget of a government. Um, so the First Step program was an incredible undertaking that brought together people of the most diverse political points of view to accomplish something that may be one of the president's great legacies that a lot of people never even talk about. I don't even know if it's a, a goal that we should be working together on something. I would just like a goal that we're going to be respectful to each other. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm just frustrated that there's people who are very different than me and think very different than me that 
I'm not going to demonize, and I just don't see us being able to do that as Americans anymore. I just see us always looking to fight, you know? Oh, there's a great deal more um, rapport than maybe gets reported or All right, good. Observed. Give us some encouragement then. That's great. Give us some well, no, Tell us it's not as bad I mean, as I, I think events. it is. I'm going to do an event uh, this next week with General Wesley Clark, who's a Democrat, uh, certainly to the left of me, but a good guy. We're friends. I've done events with Tom Daschle, with Howard Dean, um, one of my friends that would surprise people. Those are old school guys. Those are old school guys back in the day when you they guys used are. to go have drinks together and yeah. it's a different thing. This is the, the, Donna the Brazil crop. is a friend of mine. Donna and I love each other. You know, she's, she's as Democrat as Democrat can be. I had a legislature in Arkansas that was 90% Democrat. If I hadn't worked with those guys, I'd have never gotten anything done. So it's not uh, that it can't be done. Part of it is that the media environment, and I'm not just trying to be a whipping boy to the media Heck, I work. Yeah, you are in the media. I am. Not just on TBN, but I'm still a Fox News contributor, so I can speak to this from the inside of the beast. But there is a sense in which uh, the atmosphere that has been created by cable news is one of isolating, polarizing people, um, uh, you know, throwing the red meat out there to make people feel better about their own views. Most discussions are two and a half minutes and move on. There's not the thoughtful discussion. Well, we don't have relationships. I, one of the things I've heard from older school politicians again and again um, is they say, you know, back in the days of Tip O'Neill, who led the left, and who was his counterpart who was leading the conservatives? With Tip. Yeah, okay. So yeah. back in the day, they would go tooth and nail, and then they would be done, and they would say, hey, let's go get a drink together. Yeah. And, they've, and politicians said, because today— Politicians aren't living together in close proximity. They're going back. They're not having drinks with one another. They're not engaging with one another. And so, therefore, we're not able to relate to one another. I mean, what do you think about that? Is that— uh, It's very true. There's not relationships. Relationships would heal a lot of things. And relationships happen when people break bread together and they spend time together and they get to know each other's kids and grandkids. Um, but let me say this. There is a lot more relationship building that goes on at the state and local level. But that's where things actually get done. Uh, every state has to pass a balanced budget by law. Washington doesn't, so Washington never does. Um, imagine what would happen if Washington just said, you know what, we're, we're in total gridlock here. We're going to let all the decisions go back to the states, which wouldn't that be interesting? That's what the Tenth Amendment said in the beginning. Most government was supposed to be at the local level. It was very little. If you look at the Constitution and specifically the Bill of Rights, the federal government had almost nothing to do with the day-to-day lives of Americans. That was all left to the states, counties, and cities. And the federal government essentially waged war, had an army, and made sure that there was international and state-to-state commerce. That was it. But There are several things that happened, and I'm not going to go into a long history lesson, but one of the worst things that ever happened was the 17th Amendment that let senators be elected by popular vote. That didn't happen until 1904, I think it was, early in the 1900s. Before that, senators were appointed by their state legislators. And I'll bet you there's not one of the 100 Americans who even know that. They don't even know what the 17th Amendment did. What dynamic did that change? Well, until that time, the U.S. Senate took the passions of the House and cooled it down and realized, hey, 
uh, we don't want to get government this big. And the senators had to go back and face their states, their state legislators, and their governors. So they weren't going to go and make Washington powerful. They were going to make sure that Washington stayed off the backs of the states. But once they got popularly elected, they got to Washington. They decided, we'll be a much bigger deal if we build a bigger budget, if we have more to do with the lives of our citizens. So they started wanting to do things and fix things. And the next thing you know, we have a federal government that's incredibly bigger than it was ever intended to be, doing things it was never intended to do, and spending money it was never intended to have. I'm convinced it's one of the single greatest reasons we're in the trouble we're in today. Fascinating. That's good stuff. Let's go in the lightning round. You ready for the lightning round? Sure. Okay, here's the lightning round. Okay. I give you a topic. Okay. And you answer it in three sentences or less. And I must say, I've had a history of doing the lightning round and people say fascinating things and then I can't help myself by asking more questions. But my intent okay. is, I'm gonna ask you a bunch of stuff, three sentences or less. Here you okay. go, ready? Historical political figure you admire the most? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Why? I felt already, I'm one <laughs> in. Why? Because he not only... Uh, was a transformative figure in race, but he never wavered from his Christian commitment. And if people really knew who he was, they would know that he hated the term civil rights leader. He said, I'm a preacher. And, and the, today's media would never allow him to be who he said he was, the preacher. But that's who he was. And if you go back, I studied his, uh, his sermons, and I was fascinated, overwhelmed by was deep. the extraordinary theology of Martin Luther King. Uh, and, and mainly that he based everything he did, nonviolence, the whole idea of racial equality on the Bible, not on his feelings, not on even, uh, I mean, certainly the law and the Constitution, but basically at his heart, he was a preacher. Something that gives you hope for the future of America. Whoa, that's a tough one. I think what gives me hope is that uh, God is bigger than any political party or any political figure. What do you respect about people on the left? Um, their compassion for people. Uh, sometimes it may be a little overwhelming and misguided, but I respect the fact that they, uh, and I'm talking about the, the sincere and honest liberals who really do care for people deeply. And there are many of those, and, and those are friends of mine, and I respect them for that. What about people on the right would you like to change? I, I think maybe a sense that there's nothing about a liberal that brings anything to the table. I, here's what I've said. I don't think people on the left are wrong all the time. I don't think people on the right are right all the time. I just think the people on the left are wrong most of the time. So there you go. You're an accomplished <laughs> bass guitarist. You can, you can gig with anybody one night with anybody in a concert Past or future or present or past, yeah. who do you want to do a gig with? Oh, easy, the Beatles. I would be the fifth Beatle. That's Why? what got me into playing guitar. I was eight years old. I was watching Ed Sullivan February of 1964, and the Beatles came on, and my life was never the same. Simple. Can, do you, are you going to sing something from the Beatles for us right I now? I don't sing. I just play. All right. Last question. Why do you think anger is so prevalent in our country? Remember, it's lightning round. Yeah. People don't like themselves, and if you don't like yourself— uh, it's harder like other people. The, the most important thing people have that would change them is that they're reconciled to God, then they're reconciled to themselves, then they'd be reconciled to each other and even to the world God created, to the natural world, to the environment. 
We've got people who worship the environment instead of God, they're out of balance. We've got people who hate themselves, therefore they hate other people. And we have people who don't know and in fact hate God or are mad at him and they can't relate to anything. It's amazing to me. I know, I know people on the right, people on the left, and some issues I'm on the, I'm on the right, some issues I'm on the left. I, you know, it's hard to pin me down. Some, some days I'm a, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to even describe myself <laughs> anymore because people are frustrated to understand. But if I get into the room with someone who's a classic person on the right and per, uh, someone who's a classic person on the left, they always get along in the room. They, they, they always, they're mm-hmm. civil. I mean, they understand, I don't want to say something's going to inflame situation. They're, they, 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 they play nice when they're, act, we, we all play nice. We all play when we're actually in a room together, but something happens outside the room that just, just freaking bums me out, man. So you get the last word, uh, you get the last word, Mike. Anything else you want to say to our aggressive life listeners? You've been pretty aggressive here, giving some good stuff, taking some hard questions. I respect it greatly. I, I will tell you, I was a bit nervous coming into this, probably more so than any other, because I knew I was going to talk politics, and politics just wigs people out, and I didn't want to upset you with some of my questions. And um, I asked everything I wanted to ask, and you were you were a champ. So I want to reward you. You get to have the last word. Tell us, tell, tell us anything you want us to know. I wish people would lighten up a little bit. I mean, seriously, if I had one message for the country, it is find your sense of humor. God made that into you. It's hardwired in you. And if you have a philosophy of life, I would say it would, should be this. Take God seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. And too many people I know, it's just the opposite. They don't take God seriously at all. They hardly acknowledge his existence if, if they do, but they take themselves very seriously. Very seriously. And I find that off-putting and dangerous. So I would say, God's bigger than you. Start uh, seeing what that means. And uh, being able to laugh at yourself. Other people are laughing at you. You might as well get in on the gig. <laughs> people want to follow up with you or know what you're doing. How can they, how can they see what's, what's going on with you? Well, MikeHuckabee.com is my website. I have a twice-daily newsletter people can subscribe to. It's free. And then Huckabee.tv is where they can uh, find out how to watch the TBN show. So uh, those are the two best ways to sort of uh, found, find out what I'm thinking, doing, saying, and all the things they wished I wouldn't. Governor Mike Huckabee, political commentator Mike Huckabee, bassist Mike <laughs> Huckabee. It's been, it's been an honor being with you. Thanks, Thank for, you. Uh, thanks for being on The Aggressive Life. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.